0: Hello, and welcome to Tavern Watch where we talk about all things that, well, really don't fit on any of our other shows. I'm one of your hosts, Joe Perez, and with me, as always, are my stupendous adventuring party of Matt Rossi and Liz Harper. How are you doing today?
1: Howdy.
0: Uh, We are going to be talking about something today that has been rather present in the news and with good reason, I think. Uh, So... Over the last couple weeks, you've probably been very aware of a lot of, of I don't want to call it drama, uh, but a lot of anger-inducing news that's been coming out of Wizards of the Coast. Uh, following fast on the heels of uh, controversy regarding the Magic the Gathering product, uh, D&D is now following suit. A leak was released where uh, a new version of the Open Gaming License, which has existed for forever at this point it's been how many years at this point matt about 20 about 20 years i I mean they had they talked about doing it when they released third
2: edition but i think the actual uh current ogl came out in 2004 so 19 years
0: so it's it's been a good chunk of time uh and a lot of things have been published under that uh, that open gaming license Uh, And, in fact, a lot of the success of Dungeons & Dragons is due to publications that were done under that banner using uh, things that were, quote-unquote, theirs or belonged in their IP, but were okay to use under the open gaming license. Well, the new version, 1.2, was leaked, and in it was a whole lot of verbiage that was problematic as being generous, It gave a lot of uh, players and a lot of content creators in particular uh, a lot of really, really bad feelings because it was calling it draconian feels fitting. Uh, It was a revoking of the original open gaming license, the 1.0, despite its perpetual uh, nature and verbiage therein. Uh, It was attempting to lock down the use of things such as what can be used in virtual tabletops, what could be published, and also started calling into question rights of what you owned if you were a content creator and published under that gaming license. Community backlash was pretty swift and very apparent, enough so that it caught the attention of the executives that were pushing this through. Now, uh, I should point out that among these leaks were also uh, some folks that there was no official or some, some word that there was no official word to the employees of the original uh, gaming license going live uh, th- until about maybe a half hour before it was supposed to go up, um, which tells you a little bit about where the decision-making processes are being made. But the backlash did work at least in some somewhat and caused them to cancel a live stream and to take a look back uh, and to essentially throw Kyle Brink in front of everything with a statement uh, about the new "quote unquote" open gaming license playtest, after a tone—I don't want to call it tone deaf, but a partially tone deaf response saying that it
1: was God. the initial response was pretty tone deaf. I don't think you're underselling it.
0: <laughs> yeah, they—they were—they basically claimed that they rolled a one and made a mistake, and we're going to make it right and everything. Go ahead, Liz.
1: Except then it except then at the end they were like. This is a win for both of us. Don't listen to the community saying they won because we both won. It was just the amount of tone deaf there was ridiculous. And it also, the first statement they made also said that the clause in the first draft of OGL 1.2 that had leaked, uh, that said they have perpetual royalty-free rights to anything published under the OGL 1.2. They said that was in there so people didn't accuse them of stealing their content by making it completely legal and okay for them to steal content. It was the weirdest, sloppiest PR statement I have ever read in my life, and I have been covering video games for about 18 years now.
2: I was going to say... (laughs) considering what her main job is that's saying something
1: wow it was just i was kind of blown away by the complete sloppiness not only of the original leak and the silence that followed it but by the messaging that came after it was did they get an intern to write this i think even an intern would have written a better statement
0: the funny thing yeah, is, Mr. and we're probably going to talk about that later, because I, I, there's a little bit of, of question of who put that in there. Uh, and it might be a Mr. Cow, who we're going to be talking about in just a little bit, I believe. But, yeah, it was it was not good. Um, and so they released 1.2, uh, or at least an updated version of it, what they're calling a playtest, in an attempt to try I think to solicit should, feedback.
2: Go I mean, ahead. We talking should about we... This there's one thing we should at least admit. Uh, the actual full response from Kyle Brink was significantly better than the original response that you and Liz have been talking about. Oh yeah. yeah. 100%. It doesn't, it doesn't fix everything or even close to fix everything, but it was a much better written, much better approach in the, in yes. Kyle Brink's response. I'm sure if I met Kyle Brink, I would probably love to talk about Dungeons and Dragons with him. And, and that would be great. Unfortunately, he is the face of this whole thing now. Which is great for him. I'm sure. I'm sure he loves that. But regardless, uh, his response was much better, and I feel like we we have to be fair and say that. Yeah. However, that oh, yeah. doesn't mean that the actual OGL uh, is actually looking all that much better now.
0: No. And go ahead, Liz.
1: I mean, do we want to start out by like completely laying out what I, was in the leaked draft?
2: Uh, sure. Yeah. Go if f- if you've got it to hand, I have if to you to want to go it for up. it, go
0: for it.
1: I, I mean, I think we have to start by talking about where we started with this draft that leaked a couple of weeks ago, which um, included a provision that uh, royalties would be taken from people publishing, over, publishing under the original OGL, that Kickstarter campaigns would owe 20% of the total of the Kickstarter campaign, uh, to Wizards of the Coast. And if they did a crowdfunding campaign on a different platform, they would owe 25% to Wizards of the Coast. Uh, creators making more than, I believe it's $750,000.
2: Yes, you're correct. Uh, Iron Ronald.
1: Yeah, which is huge. But those creators would also owe that 20% royalty to Wizards of the Coast. It also included a provision that... Um, Can I just created... I just
2: want to stop for a second here? Yeah. I want to make sure that people understand this. It. According to what she just said, Wizards of the Coast would, would look at your $750,000 and want, you know, $75,000 is 10% of that. So $150,000. Well, 150000 yeah. yeah. So just just keep that in mind, that that's the, the bite of the apple that they're and looking for.
0: In an industry where margins are already razor thin for creators that aren't Wizards of the Coast. Like when- well- That should be perfectly clear, too. Like, if you're an independent creator and you're doing something like that that hits a Kickstarter, 20 or 25% is not an insignificant amount.
1: I mean, think of Chris Metzen, who's kind of in our wheelhouse, who uh, a while back did a TTRPG Kickstarter that's 5e compatible that raised a million dollars. He would owe $200,000 immediately to Wizards of the Coast. And that's just a wild amount of money. This sort of language was never in the original OGL. And because they're taking a cut of any content you produced under the OGL, there was income reporting. Anyone who published under the OGL had to submit financial information to Wizards of the Coast. None of this, none of this hassle was in the original OGL. And also... Wizards would have control over the content. If they found content objectionable, they could just kick you out and just say, nope, you can't publish anything under the OGL again. And that's actually one clause that I find interesting because it, at least wizards say, it's about um, permitting or prohibiting racist content, sexist content, and just bad stuff from being under their brand. And that's actually the one clause of the new OGL that I kind of, I kind of understood a company would want that and the community would want but that. But there's a,
0: there's a caveat with
1: that. But, but who judges that?
0: That's and it. And
1: how do they gauge that? And we've seen in lots of gaming communities, we've seen how reporting can be weaponized mm-hmm. by, by harassment groups. So if they're taking this as a reporting thing, which I imagine they would because it would take a tremendous amount of staff to review everything published under the OGL for content. Then what if someone, you know, serial reports something and gets it banned, gets that creator banned.
0: Yeah. We've, Uh, we've, we've absolutely seen campaigns like that in the past with things that are video games or bringing down websites because a creator has decided to weaponize their support base against somebody or something. Uh, so you know, having something like that in place probably going to be a little bit problematic.
1: And we've I also seen—oh, go ahead. We've also seen Wizards of the Coast uh, publish content that was not the best on issues of race, was not the best on issues of gender. They've published their own problematic content even recently. So are they really good judges of this? It's—it's it's just very. I like it. But also, I don't like it. It really worries me. Well, I mean, one of
2: the things about this uh, that we've already kind of talked about, but I want to really emphasize it, not just the fact that they could just ban you for anything. They could basically, and they have multiple ways they could do it. They could just say this particular thing you can't do, or they could just tell you, you can't use the OGL ever again. Like just, you're just gone. You are banished to to the land of wind and darkness. But I want to read this language because it's really quite... Astonishing. Creators would give Wizards of the Coast a non-exclusive, perpetual, irrevocable, worldwide, sub-licensable, royalty-free license to use that content for any purpose. Like, if you wrote something and you used the OGL to publish it, they could just take it and do anything they want with it.
0: Imagine Anything. Imagine you created a book. You had a successful Kickstarter. It caught the attention of Wizards. But because it was published under the OGL, they could decide... we're just going to republish it ourselves later on and take all the profits for ourselves. We don't
2: even need to republish it. They could just carve pieces out of it. Yep. Like, that. and what's really astonishing about this is that they're arguing that they can deauthorize 1.0a, which is the current version that most things that are published under the OGL is using. They're using 1.0a. They're arguing they can deauthorize it, which means that, Anything ever published under it, if you want to continue to publish it, you'd have to basically go to the new one, which would basically just be handing Wizards of the Coast your content. Now, I just that's astonishing. That's an overreach on a scale it, I've never even considered before.
0: It, 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 and not just the individual users, but now this this is also going to start drawing the ire of potential companies as well, because there are companies out there like Privateer Press, who recently just switched uh, producing all of their tabletop RPG books to fifth edition under the OGL, all of their IP stuff, everything, right? And yeah, they had
2: moved away from it. They had in third edition, they had an OGL version of their stuff. And then when they, when fourth edition came out, they came up with their own rule set that they were using mm-hmm. uh, for their RPG stuff. And so that they just moved back and they must feel like, you know, colossal, you know, like the worst luck ever. Did you you come back and then Wizards does this?
0: So, I mean, we could dwell on the 1.0, but do we want to just switch over to read off like the 1.2 in, in total before we go into details? Yeah.
1: I I mean, I do want to stress that this original version was leaked. It was leaked to the press, and everyone saw it and started dissecting it and saying all the things we're saying. This is an insane amount of overreach. puts us an insane amount of Pressure on the creators allows wizards to do whatever you want with your content. You can all imagine the community is going nuts, and you know, wizards spent a couple of weeks watching this happen and just not Didn't say responding. It took a long time for them to respond, and when they did, it was this just extremely tone-deaf response. Uh, we had there was a big campaign for people to cancel their D and D Beyond subscriptions to the point where the page uh, went down. Yeah, D&D Beyond's subscription page kind of mysteriously vanished for a while. Uh, So it does seem like the financial pressure has been pretty significant, at least significant enough for them to release a new statement that reads like it was written by a human instead of like a robot from the legal department. And uh, a new version of this revised OGL that they say they are going to solicit feedback on for the next couple of weeks
0: yeah feedback that is going to be absolutely monumental task in order to sift through before they go and try to release another one whether what they're listening to in that feedback is going to be interesting but let's talk about uh what was released three days ago at this point uh which is the quote-unquote playtest of the new ogl um for over 20 years, thousands of creators have helped grow the TTRPG community using a shared set of game mechanics that are a foundation for their unique worlds and other creations. We don't want to change. Uh, we don't want that to change, and we've heard loud and clear that neither do you. So we're going to do two things. One, we're giving the core D and D mechanics to the community through a Creative Commons license, which means that they are fully in your hands. Two, if you want to use the quint- use quintessentially D and D content from the SRD, such as owl bears and magic missiles. OGL 1.2 will provide you a perpetual irrevocable license to do so. There's already a problem in that sentence, but we're going to, we'll circle back to that. Uh, You know what? Maybe we won't because this is a a rather long document. Magic missile is a weird example, right? Because
1: there are several problems with that sentence, but yes.
0: So magic, magic missile is a, it is an interesting example. And Matt and I were talking about this a little bit before we started recording, um, there are some things that D&D created or owns the rights to as far as like what what are IP stuff. But Magic Missile has sort of existed before D&D and in several other things. So using that as an example is very curious. Um, the other thing is the perpetual and irrevocable license to do so. Um, well, no, that's actually not the case because later on in the document, which we're going to get into here in a second, they can revoke the license which completely invalidates the irrevocable license to do so. So, I mean, anything you guys want to add on that one before we move on?
1: I mean, I do also want to talk about the thing about releasing the core rules under Creative Commons and how this just, they're kind of admitting that the open rules, anyone can use the basic rules, but, you know, patent law, copyright law anyone could probably use the rules even if it weren't released under Creative Commons yep, the things yep. that wiz- the things that Wizards of the coast owns are things like specific characters specific art things they have invented the name Dungeons patent- and Dragons yeah
2: it's a trademark e- you can't call yourself e- Dungeons and Dragons unless you've you know successfully gotten permission to do so which is what the, the licensing thus does It allows you to say you know this is compatible with Dungeons and Dragons or whatever but in terms of like one of the biggest things in gaming right now for good and for ill is called retro clone gaming Mm -hmm. and retro clones are basically, they go back, they, they find an out of print or, you know, no longer in existence game or, um, and they just recreate the rules. They, they phrase them slightly differently, but as long as you do that, you're golden. So I could, I could tomorrow make a game, called you know wombats and weasels uh, all about you know l- you know little animated furry characters and just call the rules slightly different words and we'd be fine and i mean i'm not going to push that because hasbro has billions of dollars and can sue me for days uh but nonetheless there's if you go to the american bar association's front page one of the first things they tell you is you can't copyright a game yep you can't trademark a game you can do the name of it, sure, but not the rules. Uh, you might be able to patent them if they are that unique. But even then, even if you have a patent, it didn't, It doesn't stop people from making another Like Magic the Gathering had mechanics that were patented.
0: The tap, the tap symbol yeah. itself and tapping a card in the specific 90 degree motion is something that is copyrighted.
2: But that doesn't stop anybody from it making patented. another card game that basically or patented, does that. Excuse
0: me, patented. I apologize. Yes.
2: Yeah. And but that's yeah, awesome. You can still make a card game, and you can still basically do a tap. You just can't call it a tap. Like there's patent law oh. is not going to save you here, guys. Um, yeah, I'm, I I'm mean,
1: gonna... <laughs> I mean, as we were saying, the basic mechanics for Magic: The Gathering were patented, and that was the first trading card game kind of mechanics that had a patent. But that certainly has not permi- prohibited the proliferation of tons and tons of card games that are similar to magic but aren't called magic that use similar similar ideas but aren't completely the same and so they're everywhere because you just cannot pro- you cannot patent rules you cannot patent the rules of a game once you release a series of rules they they're just rules and just as Matt was saying, we could take those rules and publish them under a different name, call everything different things, and that would be okay. So Wizards of the Coast saying, we're releasing these rules as a creative commons license. Aren't we so generous just giving you these rules for free? The yeah. things that you could but already use. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've, legally we have those rules. Anyone could use those rules as long as they don't use Wizards of the IP properties, trademarks, copyrights, I love, I think specific that was names probably, and characters.
2: I think that was probably a mistake, but I love that you called it that. Wizards hmm. of the IP is perfect.
0: No, it's, <laughs> exactly it's, it's accurate. Perfect.
2: <laughs> this, this episode should be named Wizards of the IP. I, that was brilliant. Because that is exactly what the, what the heart of what they're trying to do is is they want to control their IP, but the problem is is that they are a gaming company that has never actually sat down and, and been able to pick a world well for their game they keep changing that
0: there's more to that which we're probably going to get into here in a little bit i want to go through some sure. of these other points before we, we start digging into that um so a lot of the points here and i'm just going to pull out the points that they they highlighted because we're going to talk about them as well uh protecting dnd's inclusive play experience uh which is they they said a content more clearly associated way to dnd like classes spells and monsters which is questionable, by the way, because they don't own necessarily the rights to all the monsters, classes, races, or spells, uh, is what falls under the OGL. You'll see that the OGL 1.2 lets us act when offensive or hurtful content is published using the covered D&D stuff. We want an inclusive, safe play experience for everyone. This is deeply important to us, and OGL 1.0A didn't give us the ability to ensure it, which is false, actually. Um, 1.0A gave them the right to pursue that if they so saw fit. And they had, at several points in time, gone after content creators who published racist, hurtful, and questionable material under the old OGL. So they could have done that. They didn't need a new OGL to do that. The thing that's interesting here is that in here, in what they pull out, and in the actual document, they don't define what is offensive, hurtful content, or problematic content, which gives them a lot of leeway if they're the arbiters of what that content is. Um... You can stop me at any point in time if you want to jump in, but I'm just going to keep kind of rolling through these. Uh, the TTRPGs and virtual tabletops uh, that the OGL 1.2 will apply to any content, whether it publishes books as electronic publications or on virtual tabletops. Nobody needs wonder or worry if it applies to anything else. It doesn't. The problem with that is if you put your homebrew content into a virtual tabletop and make it accessible, you have now published digital content using that stuff. Uh, if you upload your homebrew content to the GM's guild or the or the DM's guild or uh, Drive Through RPG, or even if you just technically share it—again, this is a legal distinction—if you technically share it through like Google Drive, it counts as a digital publication. So, well, it,
1: go the ahead. other thing there is, you can create homebrew content on D and D Beyond. There's a huge library of homebrew content. It's just things people have made for their own campaigns, so it's easy to add those to character sheets on D&D Beyond and use them and automatically roll the dice. I mean, wouldn't that count as well?
0: It does, because it's published yeah. under the VTT. Um, there's some <laughs> cons- there's some things with the VTT we're going to get into as well, um, because it's interesting how the distinctions are being drawn. Uh, deauthorizing the OGL 1.0A, which we already talked about, whether or not they can do that is a whole uh, other thing that's going to be coming up. Uh, Very limited license changes allowed. Uh, There's only two sections that can be changed once the the thing is live. Not true, by the way. Uh, How you can cite wizards in your work and how they can contact uh, contract or contact each other. Uh, The virtual tabletop policy will continue to support VTT usage for both OGL creators and VTT operators. Uh, Their policy spells this out. However, the policy does make a distinction uh, based off of like essentially what you're putting in there and whether or not it's it's using one of their IPs. And one of the weird things that they're sort of honing in on is animations. That's going to be valid in a little while.
2: Also, before we go on, I want to just point this out. Their policy is not a license. Correct. The OGL is a license. Mm-hmm. Um, it spells out what you can and can't do. Their policy is whole, is purely just their standards that they can change at whim and enforce any way they want. There's a big difference. This A lot of this stuff... I, it feels like they're trying in some cases, like somebody there is trying to get the the right approach going, but there's a lot going on back and forth. Like you, you're mentioning VTTs, uh, before you get too into that, I want to mention a game that, that I really have thought about a lot since this all came out. Uh, I don't know. I know Joe's heard of it. Liz, have you heard of Solasta crown of the magister? No. Okay. That's a, it's a video game that came out in 2021 it was kickstarted so and, and the kickstarter made over 750 thousand. believe me so they'd also want some of that but regardless um this game is it's it's a completely dnd compatible game it it's uses the fifth edition srd
0: it's like the old it, Baldur's gate games almost
2: yeah and, and it came out before Baldur's gate 3 did mm-hmm. by like a year and counting because it's 2023 now and Baldur's gate 3 still hasn't actually come out yet And I look at that and look at the animations thing and I look at the virtual tabletop stuff and I really feel like this is where their corporate focus was more than the actual license.
0: I would agree. And there's, I think there's a reason for that.
1: I mean, we do know that they're working on their own virtual tabletop system. And one of the big pieces of that is going to be able to have your own customizable virtual miniatures that will go Mm -hmm. on that virtual tabletop. So it does seem like they're trying to protect their rights there and push out potential competition by stressing their ownership in that realm.
0: Which is another thing I want to get into after we get through these points, because I brought this up with Matt beforehand, and it's something I've been thinking about the last couple of days. Um, they talk about ownership disputes where they you own your own content, you don't give like Wizards a license back or any ownership disputes. Uh, you can sue for breach of contract and money damages versus holding up products other players uh, are waiting for while we sort it out. Um, also not necessarily true. And what they've already spelled out in other points of the OGL here, this is a contradictory statement. Uh, the no hateful content, content or conduct. This includes harmful, discriminatory or illegal content, uh, or engage in that content, conduct publicly. We can terminate your OGL 1.2 license or content. Uh illegal content is very also concerning because what is that mean? What does any of that mean? There is no clear definition of it. If I publish a bank heist, stealing from banks is illegal. Does that mean that that content is illegal and therefore violates the OGL 1.2? No clue, not defined. Uh creator product. Yeah, badge.
2: what laws are you, also what laws are you you know enforcing in the first place? When you say illegal content, do you mean content that has been plagiarized by you or do you mean content about illegal things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I kind of have to tell this, guys.
0: And then the last is the creator product badge. You have the option to include a badge on your OGL works, which is similar to what they used to do back in the third edition and fourth edition, which was an official like Wizards of the Coast D and D stamp that you could put on your book that said that you were compliant with the uh, the system that you were compatible yeah. with it. Uh, because
2: which- you, if you, you basically followed a slightly stricter set of rules, and you got to actually mention the game
0: which there to my knowledge there's only uh one book that never had that which was the book of erotic fantasy if i think that was then, that was published in 2004 and never actually received it uh and it was white wolf's distinction to never receive it because yeah they didn't want to they didn't want to have the association on the cover uh that it was compatible with d 5th edition or 3rd edition at the time
2: Yeah, maybe i yeah. don't remember
0: this is all fine and dandy, but this leaves us with more questions than uh, answers on a lot of this stuff. And the OGL itself is very loose in its terminology. And a licensed product like this, like Matt pointed out, needs to be clearly defined. And the problem is it's really not. Now, to Liz's point, something I was thinking about earlier, when they're talking about edging up competition, well, Hasbro has had this initiative uh, in the last couple of years with all of their IPs across everything transformers uh all the saban stuff that they have for power rangers wizards of the coast all of their ip stuff there um which is the 2.0 initiative to try to generate more revenue because of course it's a, a business that's what they want to do uh and the new ceo of wizards has promised that D&D will become a billion dollar industry just like magic the gathering was over the course of the pandemic which they're that's almost like septupling what they usually make in a year. Not, not that they're hurting for money, but that's a lot, which means they have to squeeze money from everywhere. And where do you do that? Competition. So one thing that we noticed that they did over the recent years was they bought D&D Beyond. But well, why did they buy D&D Beyond? It integrated with every virtual tabletop. It allowed a clear and quick and easy way to interface with the rules. And it also allowed for publishing publication deal purchasing of books through it as well. Um, but they bought that. So now they own that. They bought their big one of their biggest competitors. There's other I mean, comp- Go ahead.
1: I, I feel like the D&D Beyond purchase just really made a lot of sense for them because they didn't have their own version of this. And so instead of building something from scratch that would always be compared to D&D Beyond, and certainly if they released a 1.0 version of their own kind of virtual character creator, it would probably be rougher than D&D Beyond, which is had this out for many years and has iterated on it and perfected it and improved it. Um, They can just buy D and D beyond. And that is their character creator instead of starting from scratch,
0: which, Um, which we know that they were already working on before the purchase of it and is still in production because it is the dungeons and dragons or D and D sandcastle group Um, that has been, they were trying to, they working on creating their own virtual tabletop And there's still a team that's still working on stuff. We know that that's, that's been announced at their uh, quarterly meetings when they talk about the teams that are working on certain products. So they bought it and it did replace it, but yet they're still working on internal tools, whether or not that is going to be uh, a full replacement or an integration yet to be seen, but it is interesting. Now, other comp uh, other competitions out there is like five e tools is a website that allows you to, uh, sort of have access to a bunch of stuff. That's competition, even though it follows under the SRD, follows under the, the OGL 1.0, uh, and it is a threat because it makes a lot of the other virtual tabletop stuff uh, nice and easy. Dungeon Alchemist is a compliant dungeon builder that just is in early access now. It's publishing a lot of its stuff under the OGL 1.0. Uh, f- what is it? Uh, Foundry which is another virtual tabletop is under the same thing but also miniature uh, customization websites are falling under this as well because Hero Forge and Eldritch Foundry and a few of the other ones that are out there Hero Forge probably being the most well known let you create custom miniatures using recognizable D&D races and classes and abilities and spells and also produces tokens for your virtual tabletop and rumor has it that Hasbro was looking on a way to do that themselves. So that's another thing that is going to be possibly included under here with this new license, because we were talking about this before. If they try to make a a play that they own the right to tieflings, well, then the artwork that's used in those third-party sites might become under question and might be subject to legal battles. It's really concerning of how far-reaching that could possibly be. Now, I've talked for a lot, so I'm going to shut up and let you guys talk.
2: And then when no, when no one says anything. Uh, I will, I'm going <laughs> to jump in here just so Liz can get a little second to, to breathe. Because that was a lot we just talked about. Um, I'm not saying that overall the 1.2 version that we actually got a couple of days ago is utterly horrible and terrible. I do think that there is, first off, I'm going to say this part. This is my first thing upon reading all of this stuff. There is no reason to change 1.0a. Yep. Uh, If you want all the things they're saying they want, it does all that. It does everything you'd need it to do. Um, They already have, as Joe mentioned, they already have a mechanism for, you know, revoking stuff. If it's, you know, bad, they just have to actually do it and they have done it. So it's there already. You don't need to add anything. Um, But I, you know, the VTT stuff and the video gaming stuff and stuff like that uh is i i reason i think that that's where the the, imp, the the uh real impetus was is the fact that their first change here one of the first changes they made is OGL 1.2 will only apply to TTRPG content whether published as a books as electronic publications or on virtual tabletops nobody needs to wonder or worry if it applies to anything else it doesn't now that the thing is is that the current OGL applies to everything mm-hmm. um One of the things that used to be up, uh, Liz Liz found it. I couldn't find it when I was looking for it. But when Liz was editing the post about it, she found the original page on Wizards of the Coast. That was up until 2021, talking about what the OGL does and doesn't do. And they straight up said that, yes, the OGL applies to video games. You can make a video game using SRD content. That's right in the original thing that they had for 20-something years. And they just took down last year. This this feels like, again, it feels like it is aimed at specific content. I don't think it's we, – we had a debate about it. I remember uh, we talked about it, whether or not we thought it was aimed at, at groups like Critical Role. Um, I don't think it's aimed at streams at all because streams are – great publicity for their game they don't want streams you know they they don't want streams to stop they absolutely don't want people to switch to other games on their streams they want people to play their game but critical world does
0: have a publishing company that does critical world
2: does have a publishing company and they just put out one of the most successful cartoons of the past 10 years the legend of vox machina is hugely successful Mm -hmm. somebody somewhere in the hasbro corporate corporate hierarchy noticed that And, you know, that's what this feels like. And also, the Creative Commons license thing, that's great, but the Open Gaming Foundation already exists. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, they're talking about, you know, we're going to put it on Creative Commons. We already have uh, a license with an outside agency that is essentially based on Creative Commons. Mm -hmm. Um, The original OGL is designed after open software stuff that was basically lined up with Creative Commons. This is all already here the, the stuff we want you know, and the, the class of spells and monsters that wizards c- that clearly owns like illithids you'll notice that no not even pathfinder has illithids in it it doesn't have githyanki or githzerai. it doesn't have anything that wizards said this is product identity you can't use it back in the day nothing all the stuff that they have is stuff that Wizards put in the original SRD and said, yeah, this is open.
0: Go for it. And, and the content creators that have stuff like that, like Steamforged Games and Cobalt Press, it's like license that. They pay their licensing fee to get uh, that specific IP stuff or for specific adventures or publications that they're putting out at those specific times. And that's it. Like That's already in place. They're, it's already being enforced. And Wizards is already making their money off of that
2: yeah so the the changes that we saw in the leak document versus the changes that that's in this uh, this new Ogl this new geo Ogl is much better than the leaks and I'm not disputing that, but it is unnecessary. The only stuff in here is this the product pr- you know protecting their inclusivity, the thing where they they basically say they want to make it you know more inclusive they want to like be able to tell people you can't publish racist stuff and that's great, but as Liz pointed out, do do we trust Wizards of the Coast to be the ones making those decisions, like as to what's not inclusive, what's offensive?
0: So yeah, if I if I publish my you know Hispanic heritage uh, history thing and it turns out that they have take umbrage with something in there, but they take umbrage with something in there, does that mean that it was bad all around, or that everybody thought so, or does it get the like? Let's point out with the reporting stuff. Does it get if it's subject to a bad reporting campaign? Do you just tear so, it down based off of that or like yeah. it-
2: so basically what you've got here is an incredible amount of community backlash over stuff that was like language that was so ridiculously overreaching that there's no way it would have worked for what so you can you can stamp down with VTTs more like there, there feels like there's a massive disconnect here Liz I just heard you make noise so go.
1: I I mean, I can see why they would want language well, sort of like this. I can see where a large corporation is going to want to have control over their brand and how it's used, how their properties are used. I mean, you can see from a corporate perspective how this kind of makes sense. You don't want D&D content out there representing your brand that is wrong, not the impression of your brand you want to give. That actually makes a lot of sense to me, trying to enforce more control over the brand. It's just they are going so far and also claiming claiming rights to so much, like we were talking about releasing the rules under Creative Commons, when really you could probably have used that all along. And, uh, you know, when you're talking about you can't use the classes of DD, well, I'm not sure you could enforce a copyright on a class called Fighter. Yeah, I was thinking that. Or Monk. Yeah, that is yes, because a lot of their classes are at their base very generic fantasy concepts. Yep. I mean maybe you can't go in and create a Warlock class with exactly the same names for everything but if you Being went made your own Warlock s- class.
2: Yeah, the movie Warlock like, would like to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean some of D&D is at its heart based in a very generic general fantasy setting and the classes re- represent this so can you just copyright a character class of fighter and if you tried to how many game companies how many video game companies how many TV shows how many things would you have to sue to make that right and I think they would lose every one of those they're it's just a tremendous it, overreach as to what they're trying to do here.
0: It reminds me a lot of, and I was talking with Matt about this a little bit earlier, it's years ago Games Workshop tried to copyright the term Space Marine and tried to, <laughs> tried to drive that home that they were the creators of and owned it. And actually went to court in several countries over it because right. multiple writers' estates from the 30s and earlier, who wrote uh, basically pulp serial sci fi novels, had been using the term Space Marine. For generations.
2: Yeah, Robert Heinlein. Just I was like, going to say. Me? Yeah. Yeah.
0: And and they wound up losing that, but they tried very hard to exert control over it because it was brand identity. Even though they had been publishing uh, the tabletop wargaming supplements with Space Marines at the helm of it for three, four, five decades at that point, like it had been a, a not insignificant amount of time. This feels a lot like that. Now, there are some other rumors, and one thing that I do want to bring out is a lot of this seems like it's aimed more at the digital experience, and there's probably a good reason for that. One of the new vice presidents that has been, I shouldn't even say new, he's been there for probably six years at this point, um, came on from a video game background, and this is Chris Cowell. Uh, Chris Cow has an MMO background. He has a background in mobile games and strategy games. And that's where the bulk of his experience lays. He is not, from all accounts, a tabletop roleplay gamer. These changes seem more dedicated towards trying to lean towards that digital experience and trying to capture and make D&D almost like a video game. Matt brought this up earlier. Like, there's a question of what makes a spell copyrightable or, or enforceable in a virtual tabletop. Is it the animation? Is it the spell name? If I make a fireball and I call it something up like, you know, the wrath of a dragon, but it has the same animation as a fireball, does that count? But we know that that's something that they're looking for as they create, as Liz pointed out, their own virtual tabletop. It's a lot of this stuff reads as somebody or people in general making decisions that are out of touch with what the game actually is. And I, 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 think,
1: I think if you went in and some of these things are just so generic that they cannot be copyrighted they're in such widespread use like a fireball if you made a spell called fireball in your game video game or virtual tabletop or your own ttrpg it's like, i don't think wizards of the coast can claim a copyright on a fireball with a fire animation that's just too general it's they were not the first people yeah, in the, the world to think like up the like concept you. <laughs> Yeah, they weren't the first company to think up the idea of a fireball or a magic missile. Um, but, and- well,
2: um too is that a lot of the stuff, I mean, Gary Gygax was a lot of things, but scrupulous about respecting other people's trademarks <laughs> is not one of them. They published a book called Deities and Demigods. The first edition of it is vanishingly rare because they got hit, they didn't even get sued. They were simply told stop. Yep. Because they published the <laughs> The Cthulhu mythos, which at the time KOCM had the, the gaming rights to before it was public domain, and Michael Moorcock's various gods and, and so forth from his Elric of Melnibone stories. And Moorcock's still alive, uh, in that guy, he didn't give nobody rights that didn't pay him. Yep, so when they decided they were going to do that, uh, they got told stop. Um, so it's kind of funny to me to see them pulling this stuff now. It's like, you know, how far have we gone, but. Gygax's magic system for D&D, the original magic system, which we still basically have, it's changed and grown, but it's still basically the same framework. It's ripped straight out of Jack Vance's dying earth books. If the, if Jack Vance's estate is out there somewhere, you want to sue a big company, you could probably get away with it. Um, I'm sure they know this. Uh, they was a <laughs> dying earth video game a few years ago, not video game, uh, uh, RPG. But my point's just this, that this idea, you know, joe mentioned owl bears they mentioned owl bears guys the idea of an owl and a bear i'm um, good luck proving you came up with that there's like there's just no way if you look at like borges like you know fantastic there's like the penhaligon is in that thing uh the periton D has stats for peritons yep Has for years the periton was in borges's book He he made that up Borges did not Wizards of the coast. Wizards of the coast is gonna have a hard time proving they own they don't own dragons or dungeons.
0: <laughs> There's the thing
1: I think that they the thing I think they could do is like okay if you went into your game and you made a spell called fireball and you like copied and pasted art out of a DD book and that was the art for your fireball I think that would be a problem. You can't just grab art from anywhere and use it as though it's your own. But you know, if you like make Wizards, a fireball like Wizards and, is doing and currently know, dro- in Court
0: for, by the way. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, if you make a fireball and you draw a little picture of a fireball and that's your fireball, I mean that should be things like that should be fine. But so I think the core, like really a core of this problem is Wizards is trying to claim all of these rights over the standard rules and over the content, uh, you know, classes and spells. Which they may not have ownership to in the first place, but they're trying to make everyone hold on to that.
0: And to to that right, there's actually a a bunch of things that are happening now as a result of this overreach, right? The virtual tabletop organizations behind Foundry, uh, Roll20 to a lesser degree, but also some of the lesser known ones are already ready to defend the OGL 1.0 in a court of law paizo has flat out stated that they're ready to take it to court as well now they may not have the sea of lawyers that uh wizards of the coast has but that's a lot of attention and a lot of time that can tie things up for a good long period of time
2: also though one thing that should be mentioned in paizo's case paizo is the ones paying the bills but there's actually multiple companies behind them yes Cobalt press green ronin uh steamforge palladium Palladium, steamforge palladium was like palladium doesn't do anything ogl why are they involved just just because it's made us mad kevin C. NBA is just mad but, but, <laughs> but look at all that paizo specifically has one advantage in this case in that they have the original law firm that drafted the ogl yeah working for them that's their lawyer yeah and the people who run paizo were at blizzard when the ogl Not was blizzard, made. At,
0: at wizards yeah wizards sorry
2: blizzard's <laughs> blizzard. Wizard watch. It all blurs together. Wizard botch. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, seriously, like that's that's a big deal because if this goes to court, they can get like the people who like their people can just set up on stand and say yes. When we made the OGL, we wanted it to be irrevocable, and then they can c- call Ryan Dancy, the guy who runs the Open Gaming Foundation and who's came up with the OGL derivative thing in the first place, and say yes, that was our intention. Like I don't see how Wizards has the money to keep this going forever. Like You're totally right about that, but I don't see a place where they're going to win it.
0: Not, and not only that, that's but it. how are they going to win that also with the, por- the court of public opinion already being swayed so heavily against them as a result of what they've done recently? Mm-hmm. If, yeah. if If they're taking this to court while they're losing thousands of subscribers and thousands of people that were loyal to that brand for years and purchasing their books and purchasing their content while they're hemorrhaging it, that's a problem. The longer it goes on, the longer it stays in court, the worse it is for them in general too. It is in their best interest to find a happy medium, whether in even if that medium is, we're just going to release an addendum that covers for hurtful content with specific writers that we can add on to the current OGL and everybody can stay happy because everything else is staying the same or something along those lines. That might be the best outcome for them. The other thing that's interesting though, and I wanted to bring this up, the last time we had a major shakeup in the the tabletop role-playing community was when fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons came out. And what that did was result in several companies and game makers deciding that they didn't want to jump ship into that new edition and creating their own stuff. That's where Pathfinder came from. Uh, Cobalt Press started doing a bunch of their stuff way back when Green Ronin started doing a bunch of their stuff way back when with that. Uh, Privateer Press, like we mentioned, started doing a bunch of their own stuff way back when with that as well. It basically forced diversity into the organization into the, the that space. We're already starting to see that again as a reaction to this open gaming license, where it's kind of the f around and find out portion of it. Where <laughs> Wizards made a big mistake, and now you have companies like Cobalt Press, who's been publishing some of the best Fifth Edition content that isn't straight from Wizards, is saying we're making our own game. Where Paizo is doubling down and saying, we're going to make sure all of our stuff is available for everybody forever as much as we can, to the point where their core rulebook is free still. Still, they make that available. Starfinder and Pathfinder, the core rulebooks are free. Zero money to, to, to even try to play their game. But other companies yep. are following suit, and it's an interesting push. Well,
2: Liz, Liz, you and I were talking about this, I think, when we were talking about the post, like whether or not we should do one, um, that this is like fourth edition's part of the problem with fourth edition was that they tried to use a different license for it. Yeah. And so this is essentially that again, just much later, like instead of when fifth edition came out, they waited all this time. They put fifth edition out under the OGL and now they've decided we're just going to change the OGL entirely.
0: Well, because they didn't revoke the OGL the first time and look what happened.
1: Yeah. yeah. I mean, in fourth edition, they came out with a different licensing scheme and, just no one used it because it was more restrictive and but and uh, there was still the original OGL and people kept publishing content under that original OGL instead of jumping forward into fourth edition under this new license. So Wizards has already done this and it didn't work. Uh. And I think this, this is a big problem. We were talking about kind of the p- court of public opinion here. This is a huge problem for wizards if they release a new license and it's not taken well by the community, which it has not been. It has not been taken well at all.
0: And it's good. Sorry.
1: So if they were if this license does not fly with the community, the community is going to play other games because they don't they don't work with this license agreement. The biggest fans of D&D who publish content for D&D make original campaigns, make stuff that get people interested in D&D and get people playing D&D, who make streams and creative adventures and publish their own books about it. Those are kind of the lifeblood of D&D is the community, the community that's going out and creating so much content and creating a fan base, a massive fan base for Dungeons and Dragons. If you lose those people, who are the people who are most upset about the new version of the OGL, you lose the community. If those people go and play other games, create content for other games instead of D&D, people are going to go elsewhere, and it's going to be really hard to get them back. And that groundswell has already started because there is so much negativity against this. Part of the reason D&D is popular in the first place is because of all of this third-party content that you can get and play with.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to. I'm going to throw something out uh, because I've mentioned this before. Uh, people often forget this, but uh, before Fifth Edition came out, uh, for like several years, the most popular role-playing game being published was Pathfinder. It was. It was making more money and outselling Dungeons and Dragons. And that's a real reason why when fourth, fifth edition started being worked on, what they were calling D&D Next, they went with this big playtest and had a bunch of people come in and playtest it to get them playing it so that they would then talk about it and spread the word of it. And it worked really well. It did. Like It got people back into D&D. It, it reasserted D&D's dominance because people knew who D, what D&D was. So it was, it was, they just wanted an opportunity. That's not going to happen this time. And like if, if you mess this up, we're in a different world. Uh, 2014 doesn't seem like it's that long ago. And yet it also seems it's nine years ago, the world changed and D made it change. And now you're going to you know, basically bite yourself. You, it, it is, it's nuts.
0: You, you have an entire group of fan base that has been bred to read rules and in depth, they're going to notice <laughs> things like this. I, this is the thing though that I think is, and I, and I want to reiterate this because I think, and I want to get our parting thoughts on this. Uh, my parting thoughts are very simple the whole experience of a tabletop role playing game in any capacity, the system doesn't matter. That's not really what makes it memorable. Sure, strong IPs like Dungeons and Dragons help because it's omnipresent, but. It's the memories that we make that matter most, and players will just find other vehicles. Um, it's whether it's you know Starfinder, whether it's Pathfinder, whether it's whatever Cobalt Press does, whether it's Powered by the Apocalypse. Somebody will find something else to sit at the table with their group of friends and create those memories. Dungeons and Dragons is special for a lot of us, mainly because of that, and that's where I feel like Wizards, the executives, need to understand that. And I think maybe then we might start to see uh, them claw back some of this hand-fistedness. Liz, Matt, what do you you think? We'll start with Liz.
1: I mean, it really does feel like a lot of this content was written by people who have maybe never played D&D. It does not feel like these are gamers, like these are people who are part of the community and are aware of the community, have really... It reads, it reads like a tone-deaf statement written by a corporate lawyer because it does not express any awareness of the community. Any company, any product, any brand would kill to have the kind of community D&D has because yeah. it's amazing. It keeps the brand going. I say this about World of Warcraft a lot. It's not about the game. When World of Warcraft is a great game, I play it. When World of Warcraft is a bad game, I play it. And that's because of the people I play with. I don't mm-hmm. always go there because the game is amazing. I go there because I like to play with my friends and I like to hang out with them, even when they make terrible puns and I want to mute them all on Discord. Even when? Even when, yes. <laughs> That's why we're there. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, some of that I could not repeat on this stream. It would not be appropriate. <laughs> uh, but it's the people that make this game and D&D is inherently social. You have to have other people to play with. And those are the people who make the game great. It's not the adventurers. One of the things, like one little point that I do want to bring out here is that Wizards of the Coast actually has a pretty full content schedule for 2023. They gave us a preview last year and they are supposed to release a book this winter. Yeah. And winter only lasts a couple more months and we have not even heard about it. I mean, I wonder how much this plays into their plans, how much this is already affecting their publication schedule because you have so much groundswell against them that they haven't even announced a publication date for a book that's coming out in the next 60 days. It's nuts.
0: Yeah. Matt, any parting thoughts? Cause I know we're running, uh, we're running yeah, out of time here.
2: I, I do want to be brief. So
1: with me, that means I'll only talk for
2: 10 minutes. Um, no, I'm just going to say this. Uh, both Liz and Joe are right. Uh, everything they just said. Uh, especially Liz's point about the community, but I'm going to also make this point. Wizards has not just released, the original OGL was not just released because Wizards was a good company of nice people who wanted to spread their game. It was a very conscious decision on the on the part of, of a few people to, to take what D&D has always had in the community and make it a hundred times more. Uh, and that's ubiquity. Uh, the open gaming license allows Wizards of the Coast to, without paying anybody to do it, get other people to to spread their game like a virus until it is the most dominant role-playing game in the world. And whenever that's been threatened, it's been threatened by the people who own D&D. It's never been the game that has ever threatened the game's dominance. It's always been the people running it. Going back to TSR, and, and the, the stuff going on when Gary Gygax got old and then died, all that stuff to, to the, the, the fourth edition debacle to this, this is always the way it goes. People will play this game forever, but they might not play your version of it forever. And that's, that's it
1: for me.
0: Yeah. It, it, Dungeons and dragons will always exist in some capacity. It just might not be the one we currently see today, but I think that's going to, oh, go ahead, Liz.
1: And it may not be called Dungeons and Dragons. Maybe next year we'll all be playing Pathfinders or something else and, you know, keep the spirit of tabletop role playing alive. Maybe without Dungeons and Dragons being a part of it, if they continue to push this.
0: We're going to find out, but I think that's going to do it for this, which is probably going to be a part one. There's a lot more here that we didn't get to cover, such as uh, Paizo's ORC, uh, when the publishers that are starting to back it. Uh, there's a lot more responses, and we're probably going to do a part two, but for now, I think that's going to do it for us here. Blizzard Watch is made possible due to the generous contributions at patreon.com slash blizzardwatch. Your continued support means this podcast signing community is able to thrive and grow. Blizzard Watch supporters enjoy exclusive benefits like early access to the podcast. Better chance at having your question answered on our podcast or the Q&A an site experience. I do want to thank you for joining us on this uh, Rather, I I don't want to call it a somber tavern watch, but a pensive tavern watch I think is more accurate.
2: Not the fun stuff that we usually do. Uh, I
0: I
1: do want to step in that I think even though Wizards of the Coast has made a lot of huge missteps. There's a chance. I think this could be. Well, there is a chance that it could get better because they are soliciting feedback. But I also think that Wizards of the Coast accidentally has made a really good thing for the TTRPG community because we may start to see more games, different games, games not published completely under Wizards of the Coast's uh, sharp legal eyes that could have different content, interesting content. We could see the whole TTRPG community flourish in ways it hasn't in years because all of this new other content could be getting a lot of attention right now. It could grow. I'm really excited to see what happens next. It, not necessarily if Wizards fixes this, but to see the rest of the community do new and exciting things. Yeah, I want to see
2: a couple of things. That'll Bowl get press a lot games. of
1: attention.
0: Yeah.
2: Kobo yeah. Press doing their own game. I'm, I am interested.
0: And the thing that I'm most excited about from us here is taking this opportunity to bring you, potentially our listeners, introductions to some of those other games. Because there's this long-standing joke about the DM at the table that's constantly having to run Dungeons and Dragons that always brings that <laughs> other book, that other game that he that they that they really masks, really like
2: masks. Let them run masks. Oh my god! Whether it's masks
0: or Avatar or something else that they really want to run, but everybody's like, no, let's just play D instead. Now's their opportunity. Now's the time. And I'm hoping that we can start highlighting some of those games, more of those games going forward, to show you exactly what's out there and I look forward to seeing what's coming next because it's even more stuff for us to try and play and experience together as a group. Masks! (laughs) But with that, folks, we'll see you next time.
2: Masks.